I'm Luke Simmons. And I am Seth Trout. And we are here to critique the hell out of culture. All right, Seth. Well, welcome back. Happy 2021. How are you, man? I'm happy 2021. That's how it's going pretty good. It's been a fun year so far. You know, no chaos. Yeah, just kidding. There's plenty of chaos. <laughs> yeah. It's about the same as last year, but generally speaking, I'm feeling it pretty good. It feels basically the same. Well, listen, we want to welcome uh, those of you who are listening. Thanks for joining us. Um, if you're new to this, Seth and I lead this uh, King and Culture podcast really to try to help uh, the people of Redemption Church Gateway think more deeply about theology and about culture. Um, and, we, you know, we kind of joke around all the time, critique the hell out of culture. And uh, we're not just trying to be the grumpy guys uh, who are ranting about stuff. But what are we doing, Seth? Yeah, well, we might be the grumpy guys, but that's not <laughs> what we're trying to be. But it's basically we think about... Um, heaven is the place where God is, and heavenly would be things that are representative of God's heart, mind, soul. And so uh, even like things that can be previews of coming heaven, like you can have ice cream that feels like this foretaste of mm. future heavenly things, but there's also hell and hellish things, things that are not the way God designed them, not the way they're supposed to be, and certainly not the way they're going to be when Jesus comes back and makes all things new. And so we're trying to articulate the various hellish parts of our culture while at the same time loving our culture and realizing that we're a part of it and we're creators of it. And so we're not exempt when we critique the culture. Sure. But most of the time we end up critiquing ourselves because we're culture makers as well <laughs> as consumers. Yeah. So what is wrong with the world? Because it feels like I look around, there's a lot wrong with the world and probably a lot of different hypotheses for what the problem is. Yeah, and but a, what in the world is wrong with this world? And there's a lot that would be going on that list that probably a lot of people would agree with. Like if you asked a number of people from different faiths, different political parties, different, and you made them top ten list of things that are wrong with the world, there may be a lot of overlap. But I do think if you asked people what is the single biggest problem in society, that's when you'd get a lot of very different answers. Sure. If you had to, if you had to narrow it down, what is the number one? problem in society and that's where the gap would be yeah so that's what we're talking about today is what is the problem in the world and uh, what are some of the common approaches that people take to try and figure that out and then what does the scripture have to say in the old testament and the new testament and actually what we find is that the central theme of the bible is addressing the key problem in the world so yeah. seth when you think of you know if we were to you know, drive down to Queen Creek Marketplace or Santan Mall or, you know, places where people would, of course, be socially distant and uh, in small crowds. And we were to ask people, hey, what's wrong with the world? What are some of the things you think we would hear? I think generally speaking, you'd hear two major answers. Uh, probably people who are lean more left on the side of the spectrum, they talk about um, poverty and education, right? The, the problem with the world is ignorance and we need to invest in education in order to help people become unignorant. And once they're less ignorant, the world would be a better place. That's kind of tends to be the general left-leaning. Yeah. And education would help you earn a higher you know, wage and take yeah. better care of yourself and have a better, nice things and have better access to healthcare. And you know, your life would just be better, you know, materially speaking and in yeah, other up, ways. Upward mobility matters. And the best way to achieve upward mobility is through education. And so that kind of tends to be the dominant and even when you see people do evil things, uh, the answer that a lot of 
people who tend to lean more liberal would give is, well, it's because they're ignorant. Ignorance. Look yeah. at the ignorance. Yeah. Wow. And they're so ignorant. And ignorant is like the most offensive way to describe someone yeah. to those folks. And then there's other people who'd say, you know, education is important, but that's not the core problem in the world. Here's yeah. the core problem in the yeah, world. People who are pretty conservative would generally say, you know, breakdown of the family system. Mm. They would say, you know, the government interfering with households. They would say, you know, husbands are not loving their wives, wives not loving their husbands, um, sex outside of marriage, children without married parents. So it tends to be family system oriented and household oriented as kind of like the dominant answer. And, and that'd be the flinch that maybe a higher percentage of people in Queen Creek, Santan Valley, Gilbert yeah. would go. I think it, it might divide uh, based on age and generation too. So obviously you've kind of thought left, right. But um, what do you think would be the differences in how, you know, somebody over 50 versus somebody under 30 would describe the core problem in the world? Yeah, people over 50 might see just kind of the drift into uh, unhealthy dependence on technology, um, this inability to uh, have grit and work. So there's like a work ethic piece, which so I, I generally tend to assume this isn't always the case that people older are generally speaking, more conservative. And so some of those kind of more gritty John Wayne type values, Mm. whereas people under 30 would kind of see social expectations, you know, society's uh, oppression uh, with their, the the world system doesn't let us act on our desires. Therefore we have all these repressed desires. Therefore we do weird stuff. Mm. Uh, And, you know, the, the problem with the, the big money people who, want us all to stay down and keep compliant and working. And yeah. so again, that's, I don't know. Sure. 51% <laughs> of young people are maybe liberal or more. I don't yeah. Know. So w- w- obviously we're given some generalities and given some kind of buckets and categories. Um, but there's lots of descriptions of what's wrong with the world. Um, how many people do you think just in the broader culture would even feel comfortable saying that there's a, a main problem in the world or, is that even too comprehensive of a story? And people just go, there's just lots of problems and there's no real core problem. It's just, you know, Hey, it's not perfect. Yeah. That's again, probably a generational gap. I assume that a lot of folks in the 45, 55 plus would assume that there's a narrative, a story, even non-Christians who are tend to be older, tend to have a modernist view, which is um, that there is like with through technology, we can overcome the problems and the, you know, and, Whereas younger folks would probably say, even to define a problem is to uh, project your values onto yeah. the rest of society. So we can't really do that. And so, th- but all of these situations, I don't, a lot of them are problems. Sure. That we can agree with. Yeah. But I think the, the commonality that I don't think people are aware of that I see as really a core problem is people's low view of self. I had a really good friend who got a DUI and was talking about how they made a mistake and how they need to kind of forgive themselves and move on. Mm. And uh, this good friend of mine is not a Christian, and I was trying to talk to them about how their refusal to deal with reality is going to make them, like the scariest thing about getting a DUI is not I made a mistake. It's coming to grips with the fact that I am the type of person mm. who would get a DUI. Yeah. Right. Because our, our actions reveal us mm-hmm. very often. 
And all of a sudden we start talking these terms, not just, oops, I got a DUI, but you have to deal with, I am the type of person who would put other people's lives at risk for a good time. Yeah, that's a that's a pretty, I would think that would be, you know, no pun intended, but kind of a sobering yeah, thought. That hits a lot harder than everybody makes mistakes. Sure. This reality that I'm not who I want to be and I'm not who I hoped I was. And that kind of deeper sense of self-hatred or self or what, what Christians call guilt. Yeah. You know, I've done what I said I wouldn't do. I've been who I've said I wouldn't be. And that's something that I think actually gets to the biblical answer hmm. of what we're talking about. Sure. Is the biggest problem in society, the biggest problem in the world is sin. Sin. Yeah. There that, it is. There you go. You know. Yeah. I mean, it, it's interesting because that's not what we want to hear. And yet, if you look at it and you go, okay, all the different things we said is like, we think it ought to be this way, but it's that way. Yeah. I think, you know, the world ought to function like this. Education ought to go like that. A work ethic and families ought to be like this, but instead it's like that. I ought to be something, but I'm not even what I ought to be. There's this sense of a gap and the biblical answer for why there's this gap between kind of what we were made to be and the ideal and where we are is is sin. So, so sin, what is, uh, what's sin, right? I would think if we were in those same conversations with folks uh, down at the mall and said, Hey, what's the problem? They said, what do you think it is? And we said, sin, they'd probably go, uh, I've heard of that. And I don't think I like that word, but I'm, I'm not, what does that mean? What would you say? So the, the most concise definition comes from first John three, four, which is sin is lawlessness. Hmm. But we tend to hear that and again, I feel like I've said this a thousand times and I keep saying it, is we hear the word law and we think about uh, elected Congress persons drafting legislation far off somewhere else. We think about some fat law book that you have to have a doctorate <laughs> in law to understand. We think about lawyers and we think about this totally abstract and personal thing. But biblically, law is always the instruction of the father. So it's fatherly teaching. And if our New Testament and Old Testament translators translated Torah as instruction rather than law, I think we'd have much higher view of God's law because it'd be God's instruction, his fatherly teaching. And so most basically sin is rebelling against God's instruction. And so it's not just his arbitrary uh, decree and what he decides he likes and he doesn't like, but it's most basically saying, God has created us, he's given us life, and he's taught us how to live in the world he created. And he's told us the ideal way for humans to flourish, and we have said no. Yeah. Well, I think that word rebelling is a really key word, you know, because uh, sometimes, you know, I've even heard someone say, you know, theologians talk about creation, fall, redemption, restoration, but fall doesn't quite do it because you didn't trip into sin. You didn't accidentally stumble. It's not like, oh man, I just came up short. Um, Of course, one definition of sin is that it's missing the mark. Um, But the the idea you get when you read the scriptures is it's kind of like it's missing the mark because it wasn't aiming at the mark. Yeah, It was trying to hit something else. It was aiming at something else. And so there's this probably even more appropriate to say creation rebellion Redemption, restoration. Yeah, and we see that in Genesis 3, where God gives instruction to Adam and Eve. And he says, subdue, have dominion. He has dignity, gives them calling. He gives them purpose. He gives them all of the earth. To, he says, here's the, here's the garden. Spread it out. 
you know, yeah. develop this garden until it covers the ends of the earth. And all it takes is someone coming along saying, did God really say? So the first like hint we see of the beginnings of rebellion is questioning the word of God. Did God mm-hmm. really say questioning the law, the instruction, mm-hmm. the fatherly teaching yeah. of my son, my daughter, here's how to live. And then Satan comes along and goes, eh, did he really say that? And so, so that is the heart of rebellion is questioning God's lawlessness or questioning God's law, producing lawlessness and producing rebellion in us. And so that really quickly in the Bible, we have Genesis one, Genesis two creation, which we talked a bunch of a ton on previous episodes, Sure. but right in the beginning of Genesis three, we see this rebellion and the heart of the rebellion is God is withholding good from you. You have to go and get good somewhere else. Yeah. Um, God is keeping things from you that you should have go and get those things somewhere else. And so they go and get them and yeah. their eyes are open. Um, they become sinful. They see that they're sinful and they immediately hide themselves from God and they go and try and cover themselves in these leaves and they run. And so, so it's not just sin. That's the problem, but it's the result of sin, which is shame, which is self-hatred, hiding yourself from yourself and other people that husband and wife hide themselves from another Adam in hiding himself from God. Adam necessarily hides himself from his wife. They run, they cover themselves. So hiding from God, hiding from another shame, guilt, separation from God. It all is the product of sin. Yeah. It's so interesting. If you just read Genesis two and then you read Genesis four, you'd go, what in the world happened? Yeah. You know, and, and really, if you read the two of those, you'd go, Genesis two sounds like la la fairyland. Like that's make believe. Genesis 4, oh, that's, I, I know that world. I can turn on the news every night and see Genesis 4. Yeah. And so what happened? Well, what happened was Genesis 3, the rebellion, this rejection of the instruction, this rejection of God's fatherly care, um, this imagining that God was somehow not giving them his best when in fact he was. They had everything they could ever want. Um, and that really is is the heart of the problem. That's the core problem in the world is our sin. And so the rest of the Bible is really kind of, a story of what God's going to do about it. Yeah. I mean, we see in Genesis 4 through 11 is the, is basically because of Genesis 3, because people are hiding from God, rebelling from God, and hiding from one another. Here's how society unfolds. Genesis 4 through 11 is the story of society built on rebellion against God. And so that becomes this metaphor of Babel or Babylon that we see throughout the Bible, that there is Babylon. It exists, and Babylon is society insofar as it's built on um, hatred of God and rebellion against God. But what's really interesting, and so even we talked about the biggest problem in society, but if I asked you or other people, what is the most important verse or section of verses in the Bible? You may get a hundred different answers again. Yeah, I don't know. What would you, say, could, what'd you say off the top of your head? I already told you the answer. Yeah, but. I mean, off, the first thing that comes to mind for me is John 3.16. You know, I mean... That feels like the kind of gospel in a nutshell. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believed in him wouldn't perish but have eternal life. I go, that feels like a, if you, if you only gave me one verse, I go, that feels like a pretty big one. Yeah, that's a great summative verse. Yeah. And I think that the heart of that verse is similar to the answer that I think the biblical authors give in the way they structure the Bible. So, mm. so I want to say here that when interpreting the Bible, there is the content of the verses, like how, what each verse says, and then there's the structure of how it's written. Mm. And to the Hebrew mind, structure matters as much for interpretation as the verses themselves. This is one of the reasons why taking verses out of context is so dangerous. Mm. 
in the Old Testament is because the structure is often the way the author's communicating meaning and function Mm. and form. And so Moses writes the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. The Pentateuch. Yeah, those are called the Pentateuch. Penta meaning five, Tuch meaning five, I don't know. (laughs) Pentateuch. Yeah, five books. Yeah, I'm sure there's a good answer to that. But those five books come together, and the way it kind of corresponds is a lot of Jewish writing had this thing called chiasm or chiastic structure. Yeah, and that, this is amazing. I, but every time I see a chiasm, and there's a lot in the Bible, you go like, I'm not smart enough to write like that. Yeah. You yeah. know, and it's, I just think it's so cool because so often I think we imagine the biblical writers as these knuckle-dragging, you know, Neanderthals that were just kind of barely getting words on a page. And it's like, these are literary brilliant genius people so so what's a chiasm so chiasm is think about it like a sideways pyramid that's kind of the easiest way so if you have a and then you go down a line like if you're writing a word document you type the letter a go down a line indent b go down a line indent c then you go down a line and so then you have a b c and then you have a second c we call it like c prime or c1 then you go down a line, but back a space B. So think about like a sideways pyramid where A and A line up, mm-hmm. B and B line up, and those things line up. Uh, it happens all the time. And what ends up happening is in Western thought and our- It's a bit of a sandwich. Yeah, it's kind of right. a sandwich, but like it's leaning inwards. So you think yeah, about you building in, building out. is A, and you know a couple layers of cheese is B, and then the meat in the middle. Yeah, that's great. That's a better illustration than I could come up with. So well, and interestingly, it, it kind of highlights that the point of the sandwich is the meat. Yeah, we tend know, to think, and the point of a chiasm is whatever's in the center. Yeah, we give a tremendous weight to the opening and closing mm. of messages. Sure, four score and seven years ago, yeah. and you like everyone knows the opening right. line. That's and so funny you say that. I think even as we prepare sermons, I never think, what's the midpoint of the sermon? Yeah. It's like, how's this going to start? How's it going to end? Yeah. How's it take off? How's it land? Yeah. And most time people are bad preachers. It's <laughs> the takeoff or it's the landing. It's not what's going on in the middle. Right. Whereas in the Hebrew mind, the centerpiece of it, because it's such a literary poetic mm-hmm. deal, the center is the most important aspect. And so, so we think about it like this. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Those five books form a chiasm. Genesis goes with Deuteronomy, Exodus goes with Numbers, and the center is now the book of Leviticus. And this... So just real fast, like, let's go super quick on this. Genesis and Deuteronomy go together in what way? Partially in the way of just they're, they're structured, but you have Genesis, you have the, the beginning of the covenant, you have the establishing of the covenant, and Deuteronomy is a reiteration of the covenant. It's like okay. the charter that, okay. that go together. So, and then Exodus and Numbers go together in that it's sort of Exodus and wilderness, this kind of yeah. Israel on the move kind of yeah, thing. Israel's moving, they're in the wilderness, they're rebelling, God's instructing his people, um, there's, there's counting, there's people, yep. and so these wilderness stories. In the center, we have... Leviticus, what the priests are supposed to do. Yeah. Well, it's so interesting because even as I think about the kind of, you know, Christians going through the Bible in a year part, it's like, if you give me those five books, Leviticus is kind of the one I'd like to skip. Yeah. <laughs> and yet what you're saying is, no, Leviticus is actually really key. Yeah. And it's I, the meat. So I think the way that Moses structured it, he is arguing that Leviticus is the most important book of the Pentateuch hmm. because of the chiasm. Wow. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And it's not just that Leviticus is the most. So why is Leviticus the most important part of the book? That's a huge question. Well, because the priests preside over the temple, 
in the temple sacrifices, and the temple sacrifices is where we meet God. Mm. So the entire part of Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, is teaching Israel, here is how you meet with God. Yes, we came from somewhere. Yes, we were liberated from slavery. Yes, we're going somewhere. Yes, I'm with you forever. But all that means jack squat <laughs> if it doesn't have to do with how do I meet with God. And yet when you talk about meeting with God, there's a big problem, which takes us back to the problem, which is you can't meet with God if you're filled with sin. Yeah. When, so something has to be done about your sin. Yeah. Once you're kicked out of paradise, once you're kicked out of Eden, you don't get to be with God. And so it's not just the place, but it's also the process. Yeah. It's not just how do I find the place where God is, but it's by what process am I able to be cleansed so that I can be with God? Mm. And that whole question is the idea of atonement, the washing away of sin. And so, so let me guess in the middle of Leviticus. Yes. Is something about atonement. Yeah. So the you, middle of the you middle. You said John three. Uh huh. Right. My answer I gave when a buddy of mine asked me that was Deuteronomy six. Cause that's hero Israel. The Lord, your God is one. Okay. Love your Lord, our heart, soul, mind, strength. And he told me like, nice try. <laughs> I thought I was kind of, anyway. That's a good answer, but apparently yeah. he knew. <laughs> yeah, and then he showed me the, the chiastic structure of the Pentateuch mm. and of Leviticus. Wow. And the way Leviticus works is chapters 1 through 7 and 23 through 27 are sanctuary laws. 8 through 10 and 21 through 22 are priestly laws. 11 through 15 and 17 through 20 are personal laws. And right in the centerpiece in between 15 and 17 mm. is the peak of the chiasm, chapter 16 of Leviticus, the Day of Atonement. Wow. And so in Moses' mind, the most important question is how do I meet with God? And the most important question in how we meet with God is how do I atone for my sin? Hmm. So even when you say, you've already said it a few times, atonement, atone, uh, what do those words mean? Yeah, so atone can mean washing, cleansing. Uh, it has to do with the removal or the payment of uh, sin in a variety of ways. And I think the, the big idea here is that they use the word, you go from being unclean to being clean. You go from um, being seen as sinful to being seen as non-sinful. And so atonement is the process by which your sins are wiped or washed away. Hmm. So atonement is what deals with your biggest problem and gives you what you most need, which is access to God. Uh, because your sin is dealt with, you are cleansed, you're purified, you're forgiven. Yeah, and so... Growing up Jewish, you know, there's the, the Yom Kippur, is means Day of Atonement, Kippur, yeah. and it has everything to do with uh, making amends, so you're mm. making it right. Mm. How do you make it right with God? And once I've cleansed with my sin, then I've made it right with God, and it has to do with kind of like making good, yeah. like you owe something, yeah. and so if you, you know, I got a bill the other day from some medical company from when my son was born 15 months ago, <laughs> for like $7.23. And you're like, uh, too late now. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, what's the statute of limitations on charging me for <laughs> right. dumb stuff? But they, but the, there's a sense in which I have to make good on, yeah, this like I, and so you could can call paying sure the what I owe yep. atonement. Yep, uh, I'm atoning my debt, right? And so every time we rebel against God, we owe Him. Mm -hmm. We're sinful. We're indebted, and He's God's gonna get get paid. He's there, yeah. there's no getting away. God's a good judge. He doesn't let off guilty people. So tell me this, because I was just, uh, you know, right now I'm, I'm getting toward the end of numbers in my Bible reading. Before that I was in Leviticus. 
And man, between Leviticus and Numbers, I've just been reading about tons and tons of sacrifices, this kind of sacrifice and that kind of sacrifice and this kind of animal and that kind of animal and this kind of grain and that kind of oil and sacrifice, 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 sacrifice. I mean, the whole thing just feels filled with sacrifices. So what is it about this sacrifice? What is it on the Day of Atonement that is different than kind of the daily sacrifice that would have been offered? Why is this one in particular special? Yeah, so it is special. So I think that's a great thing that you saw that was because in Leviticus 16.31, it says, uh, the ESV says, it's a Sabbath of solemn rest to you. But the way that should be translated is this is the Sabbath of Sabbaths. Like Uh, this is the highest Sabbath. Wow. Like this is the ultimate day of rest. This either you do a Sabbath every Friday night to Saturday night, 52 weeks a year, but this is the Sabbath of Sabbaths. It's the, it's the queen of the castle. It's the most important deal. So this is the most important sacrifice. This is the sacrifice in which, um, the, the priest goes into the Holy of Holies and makes atonement for the sin of the people. This was the most the kind of center point of the temple that they didn't go in other yeah. than this day. Yeah, you don't go into the Holy of Holies. It's where the presence of God dwells. Yeah, it's where God's presence temple. dwells. It is the, there's all these, like, if you, if the priest doesn't go in with the right reverence, having washed appropriately, you die. Yeah. This is not a joke. Right. This is the Holy One of Israel, the great judge. All of sin and fall short. We all like sheep have gone astray. You're not marching in here. Yeah. And so, I've heard stories. I, tell me if if, the, if you've heard this or if this is true that they would sometimes uh, tie a rope around the high priest in the event he screwed up and died in there. They could pull him out without going in. Uh, have you heard that before? Is that kind of a, just a preacher story? I have heard that, and I don't know if it's true or not. Okay. Well, car- moving right along. For another episode. Yeah. But it's a, it, at least the story reveals the, the idea or the point that, like, this wasn't a place that you just went in and— you know, messed around in. You yeah. took this of utter seriousness once a year, only the high priest. And this, and is, a, this and, is serious. And a big part of this theme is that you approach God on his terms, not on your terms. Mm. Who is the judge in this relationship? Not you and me, not the priest, not the people. God is the judge. Mm. And so we tend to read Leviticus and think like, what a bunch of stupid hoops to jump through. <laughs> right. And guess what? Lawlessness. Mm. That is our heart saying, I am the judge of God. God is not the judge of me. Mm. Who does he think he is making me jump through hoops? Yeah. And this is part of this, this sobriety that the, some of like the process and of the sacrifices of by which we make ourselves clean are teaching us how serious our sin actually is. Because mm. we think, yeah, I'm a sinner, but we don't think it's that bad. Mm. And so the process itself is meant is a gift from the Lord teaching his people this is how bad sin is. Mm. Stop screwing around with it. Mm. And so just like Adam and Eve think, yeah, God said don't eat that, but uh, whatever, he's not here. We minimize our sin in the future. We minimize our sin in the past. In Leviticus, the whole structure of it is teaching us, do not minimize your sin. Mm. Wow. And so this question, I do think that people, by and large, see and sense and experience the fact that they have a sin problem. They have a rebellion problem. Mm. And so the, one of the metaphors we get here is about how this, there's a scapegoat. So one of the things they do is they kill one goat, spread its blood for the atonement, but then they also pray over a goat and send it out in the wilderness, and it's like the goat is meant to like carry their sins. It's kind of like... Well, yeah, gonna, doesn't the, the high priest actually lays his hands on the head of the goat and confesses the sins of the people Yes, as 
you know, in a way of kind of transferring, if you will, transferring the sins to the goat. Yeah. And then sends sends the goat outside the city uh, as this picture of the sins going away. Yeah. And it literally says, once I get to a remote area, the guy who took him out there can let him go. And so it's meant to be representative of uh, your sins are now gone. Hmm. They're, they're far, far away. Yeah. And so this whole language of having a scapegoat yeah. is actually ripping off Leviticus 16. <laughs> yeah, sure. We have scapegoats all the time. Someone's got to be the fall man, scapegoat deal. And I think a lot of what our culture builds itself on is people trying to deal with their guilt problem without a Leviticus 16 day of atonement solution. Mm. We're constantly trying to prove ourselves with our advocacy and our Facebook posts, our Instagram posts saying, I deep down have this sense of I'm not the person that I want to be. I'm not the person who I ought to be. I'm not the person I told you I would never be. I am the person I said I would never become. I'm my father in all the wrong ways. I'm my mother in all the wrong ways. Well, it's just interesting, even when we talk about the way that uh, different people would kind of view the problem in the world, they're all sort of scapegoating it. Yeah. It, the problem's education. Let's put the blame on that. The problem's uh, lack of family breakdown or family breakdown. Let's put it on that. Yeah. It's my parents. It's the way I was raised. It was this. It was this. It was this. Well, I heard a story one time along those lines where uh, the British newspaper asked the question, what's the biggest problem in the world? Hmm. And a bunch of people wrote in their answers. And G.K. Chesterton, who wrote one of my favorite books of all time called Orthodoxy, hmm. it's great. He wrote an answer. <laughs> and he said, dear sir, I am. That was his whole answer. That's a short essay. <laughs> short essay. Yeah, what's wrong with the world? I am. Yeah, and this is a person who is being honest about the fact that he's not who he wants to be and he hasn't been who he wants to be and he falls short of the glory of God and that he needs to deal with the fact that he's contributed substantially to society's problems. It's not the liberals ruining society. It's not the conservatives holding us back. I think someone who really is honest before the Lord, we see ourselves as implicated in I am a participant in Adam's rebellion and I contribute to the decay of God's good world. So any other things that you want us to notice about this day of atonement, this center activity of the center book of the Pentateuch? Just the, the center thing here is the two goats, the one that's slain and the blood is splattered and the one that's sent out. So the, the goat is sent out away. It's banished. It's exiled. Yeah. It's sent away. The other goat is killed and it's, it's blood is splattered. And the reason it's splattered is the answer is later on in Leviticus 17. It says that um, the life is in the blood. That blood was to be seen as holy and it's life for life. Blood is traded for this. This is why Hebrews 9 talks about how there's no forgiveness of the shedding of blood mm. because you have in your sin contributed to the death of the world and now it takes death to pay for death. And yeah. this is the way that God set this up. Mm. But this, this centerpiece of the Bible is a theme that, so it's for Moses, Pentateuch, center, day of atonement, center of Leviticus. How do I get with God? You get with God through this process. This process is called atonement. The means of atonement is blood. And so it seems like if that's the centerpiece of Moses' deal, and, you know, there's a lot more. <laughs> there's a lot more books. There's a lot more chapters. There's a lot more to read after you get in Deuteronomy. This theme must keep appearing. Yeah, and we see that. And we're preaching through John right now at, at our church, and John gives tremendous attention to the fact that Jesus makes final atonement for the sins of his people. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Yeah, he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's how it opens up, John 1. 
But then not only that, but we see that about a third, the whole like last third of the book is devoted to um, a tiny span of a couple of days. Yeah. And the centerpiece of that whole thing is when what John describes as the glorification of the sun, mm. which is when he is lifted up, not to be uh, uh, glorified by man, but to be betrayed and murdered by man. He's lifted up with the cross. He, in he's irony, lifted up the king of the Jews with the crown of thorns as he's crucified naked for sins he didn't commit yeah. as he becomes a scapegoat. He becomes a scapegoat. The father turns his back on him. There's separation between mm. the Holy of Holies, God most high, and the son. So he's both goats. He's mm. the goat whose blood is stained, who pays for sin, and he's the goat who's sent out and is banished. And I don't know if this, I don't recall if this uh, is described in John, but I know in some of the other gospels, there's also this description of the the curtain uh, in the temple that was yes. opening the way to the to the Holy of Holies, that that is now ripped open. Yeah. And access to God's presence is available as Jesus dies. Yeah, the place that only the priest could go once a year on the Sabbath of Sabbaths. Mm. Now we are all in the Sabbath of Sabbaths mm. all the time. This is when Hebrews talks about you have entered into his rest. You have, if you're in Christ, you have rested from your works. Mm. That there has been once and for all, He's offered himself as the propitiation for sin. And the word propitiation is like the word atonement, but it's not the same as atonement. But that comes up a ton. Mm-hmm. The propitiation has to do, so if, if atonement has to do with kind of getting right or making right or cleansing or paying your debt or uh, getting squared up, yeah. to use like economic terms, propitiation is more of a relational term rather than economic term. It has to do with the removal of wrath. Mm. God was angry, now he's not. Yeah, Kind of like if I went into your house luke and i stole your xbox <laughs> that'd be easy because i don't have an xbox but i do have a ps4 <laughs> if i stole your ps4 <laughs> and i stole your ps4 and you'd be in trouble you'd be really upset i would be and if i like held it hid it from you for a couple of weeks and you're like what happened to it and i brought it back to you like a month later and i was like hey man i'm really sorry here's your <laughs> ps4 back yeah i would have kind of made atonement yeah but you would our relationship would be severed you would not trust me. I would not. You'd think that guy steals you can't PS4s. Come to my house <laughs> yeah, that guy steals PS4s. He probably shouldn't be a pastor. This is kind of a problem. <laughs> and there'd be real relational repercussions sure. at, at a minimum. Yep. And propitiations speaking to the fact that the relational problem is is solved, not just the economic or the economic problem. And so it's not just that God would make it right with God, but now he looks on us with favor and grace and kindness. So what we're saying is that uh, Jesus dying on the cross is not dying merely as a good example of uh, somebody who, you know, just is nice to his enemies. Um, he's not just a good moral guy, but that actually he's a substitute. Yeah, And sometimes, I mean, we'll use this term of substitutionary atonement. Yeah, that we should have died for our sin spiritual death, which is separation from God or Gehenna, hell. But instead of us dying for our sin, Jesus dies for our sin. Yeah. This is what Martin Luther called the great exchange. Yeah. That he who had life gave life and we who only had sin to give gave that and Jesus took it on himself. And so we we get God, we get forgiveness, Jesus bears our wrath and that's the great exchange. 
So if, uh, if somebody's going to dig deeper into the idea of atonement, one thing they're going to maybe find are these various theories of atonement. Yeah. Um, what should we make of those theories? Well, a lot of them see the truth right in aspect, right? So there's one theory, Chris is Victor. Jesus is enthroned as king over creation, and that's true. He's lifted up high. He's conquering sin and death. He is the king of kings. He's, he's ironically called the king of Jews. He's ironically given a purple robe. He's ironically given a crown of thorns. And the greatest irony is on those who thought they were being ironic is the <laughs> fact that it was true. This yeah. is what's happening. Yeah. Um, other theories, um, like you said, the, the moral example theory, yep. it could be people who really don't like the idea of God's wrath. And they really don't like, they really, really don't like the idea of the father pouring out his wrath on the son. We'll talk about Jesus as a um, moral example of the one who gives away his life for others, and we can do that. And that's that theory by itself is less than the truth, but also we're called to follow in the way of Jesus, which yeah, includes— Yeah, if you're going to follow me to pick up your cross and— Yeah, when I, when I give away my life, it leads to life in others. And so when I willingly choose death to self, others thrive. And that's the, that's the essence of hmm. substitutionary love or su- sacrificial love is I can death like die like Jesus died. But that, that, these like various, those are kind of angles on the cross. Yeah. But I think that even those other angles of the cross, based on Moses' structure, are like the, mm. the center of the atonement is the propitiation, the atonement. Yeah. Well, it, it seems like if, if, what, if what Leviticus is doing is saying, here's, here's how to understand this, um, it would be weird if the New Testament kind of fulfillment of that was radically different. Yeah, the big question in Leviticus is, how do I get close to God? And once I am there, what do I have to do? Yeah. And part of what the New Testament is saying is, Jesus has done it because mm. you never could. Yeah. That he entered once and for all behind the curtains and, and offered himself as a substitute for sin is what the book of Hebrews teaches. Yeah. And so he's there. So like that goes back to if you walked around and asked a bunch of people, what's the biggest problem in society? Very few people are going to say our separation from God but that's the right answer. Yeah. And and I see this even in John 7. This is a text I was looking at this morning and preparing for this podcast. It was on my mind. So Jesus is, um, the the Pharisees send these officers to arrest Jesus. I'm reading like John 7, 35-ish. And they're coming to trap him and they come to him and uh, Jesus says to them, "Um, I'll be with you a little longer, but where I'm going, uh, you can't come. And later in John 8, he says that because he says, I'm going somewhere you can't come, and it's because you're going to die in your sin. So he's, <laughs> he's predicting the future. Yeah. You religious leaders will never repent, and you'll die from sin, and you won't go to be with me in heaven. So he's saying, your heart is so hard, you have no interest in being corrected by God, yeah. which is a scary you're place gonna to be. You're going to die in your sin. You're going to stay there. You're not going to be connected to the God. So what he's saying is, yeah. I'm going to heaven. You can come with me because your heart is so hard. But they don't get what he's saying. And it's really interesting to notice what he thinks, what they think he's getting at. Hmm. They say, what does he mean? This is verse 35. The Jews said to one another, so Jews being religious leaders, the, the religious aristocracy, the oligarchs, where does this man intend to go that will not find him? Does he intend to go to the Greeks? <laughs> so what the Jews literally assume is, yeah, if he's going to go over there with those people, we cannot go with him. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not headed into those Gentile lands. Yeah, so they assume that ethnic hostility 
is the biggest problem. Hmm. That's probably how they perceive it. Those Greeks, icky. Us Jews, not icky. Yeah. Right. And what's amazing here is these people are assuming that they are good with God and bad with the Greeks. Hmm. We Jews are right with God and we're just not right with the Greeks. So they think they have their theology right and the relationship with God right. They just think they have their social issues wrong. Yeah. But what Jesus shows us in the next chapter is the problem is way stinking bigger than <laughs> you smug, arrogant people think it is. Yeah. You think you just have some ethnic tension, but guess what? You have some problems with God tension and you are going to die in your sin, your hardest heart. You hate God. Mm. And what we end up seeing is that it's actually until they deal with their separation from God, they will never be connected to and reconciled with the Greeks. Yeah. It's not that the ethnic problem is not a problem. Yeah. It's just not the core problem. Yeah. And that's, we, we hear folks say like, we don't really have a skin problem. We have a sin problem. And I think that type of thing, the reason people believe it is because it sounds good. And that's the way that most people decide what they think nowadays. <laughs> oh, that sounds good. I like it. It has a good ring. But that's such a small view of sin hmm. that part of what we see in Genesis 3 is immediately when there's separation from God, there's hostility between husband and wife, between brother and brother, between tribe and tribe. Yeah. What we see in John 7 here is it is the Jews' inability to repent and have soft hearts before the Lord that is maintaining the dividing wall of hostility between Jew hmm. and Gentile, between Jew and Greek. And so Jesus in the next chapter is going to say, you think you have a problem with the Greeks. Your real problem is with me. Mm. You will die in your sin. What we end up seeing in, Gen in Galatians, Paul's commenting on the work of Jesus and says, like, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, but he has, in Ephesians 2, torn down the dividing wall of hostility. And all of that happens in Christ, that once you have been united with Christ, you are then able to be united to uh, these social problems. So there are very real social problems. Yeah. But all of those social problems are derivative of relationship with God problems. Mm. And one of the questions we have to ask is if we have these ongoing social problems, are we really united to God like we think we are? Because mm. the Jews were 100% confident that they were good with God and they were straight up wrong. Yeah, God came and they said, we don't want you. They were unable to be corrected by God Yeah, because they were so certain in their position. And their whole, this whole framework of if God goes to be with the Greeks, well, we can't go with him. Mm. I'm not going that far. So I want to bring this home this way is I'm imagining someone listening to this and they're driving to work or maybe they're uh, headed to pick up uh, their kid from soccer practice or something. And, and uh, they get into work and uh, they say, man, I just was listening to the most interesting podcast. About Leviticus. And uh, someone at work who, you know, they don't know the Lord. They're not into this stuff. Goes, oh, what were you listening to? And they go, oh, I was listening to this King and Culture podcast. Oh, what do they talk about? Uh, sin and atonement. Yeah. Eh, conversation over. I don't get it. What are you talking about? So if you're that person and you're walking into your office and you're saying, you know, in a, in a few sentences or in a paragraph, here's how I'd explain to someone that doesn't know any of this stuff. Uh, what, what is sin and atonement? I'd say there's two, the two big themes. One, we're rebels separated from God, and God solves that problem in Jesus. Mm. And two, God solving that problem in Jesus enables us to pursue social well-being, public well-being in every arena. Mm. 
that all the other social problems aren't not not problems. Yeah. But you kind of got to get the major things before you get the minor things. Yeah. And so this is why I think that even when we talk about I'm working for public good and Jeremiah 29, 7 says, seek the welfare of the city. I still see evangelism, which is helping people see you have a God problem, a separation from God problem. Mm. And in Christ, your separation from God problem can be solved. Evangelism really is the tip of that spear as it relates to seeking the welfare of the city. Yeah. Because what we see is when people are reconciled to Christ, they can be reconciled to one another. Mm. But one of the questions we have to ask ourselves is, if I'm refusing to be reconciled, or if I'm refusing to engage in the work of uh, undoing the effects of sin, have I really been reconciled to God? Because when I see things the way God sees things, my heart breaks for what his heart breaks for, Mm. and I lament what he laments, and I'm angry at what makes him angry, Yeah, and I do the work he's called me to do. Mm. That's good. Well, hey, next time we're going to talk about another major theme in the Bible. And uh, we've got a few different themes that just keep coming up through the scriptures. And uh, so we'll leave it hanging. We also have a special guest next time. Yeah, we do. That'll be fun. So stay tuned for that and uh, join us next time on this. One other thing just to let you know is Seth and I recorded an episode, a kind of special bonus episode for our For Jesus podcast. That's another podcast that I'm part of. But Seth joined me to do some follow-up questions for our Ask Anything, uh, where people in our church had texted in a bunch of questions. We answered some of them on a Sunday, but then we spent about an hour answering a bunch of other questions about a lot of different things. And so if you uh, are interested in hearing Seth and I talk some more, but maybe about some uh, different stuff answering those questions uh, head over to for Jesus and I would love you to hear that so Seth thanks for your time and your thought and your reflection this is uh, this has been great yeah it's a lot of fun talking about Leviticus and kind of having a sense of what it's talking about so I was excited to share it yeah well thanks man all right everybody we'll have a great day and we'll see you later